0: The Outline, World Dispatch.
1: It's Monday, July 17th, 2017. I'm Adrienne Jeffries, and today on The Dispatch, two stories of TV drama. Hannah McBride talks to the director of an 80s TV movie that terrified America.
0: This is what going to be like. You'll be shopping, and you'll be nuked.
1: And Anne Derek Gaillot wonders if we really
2: need live police chases on cable. The fact is, even when things are live, that doesn't mean that it's unfiltered. Here's the dispatch. Culture. In the
1: 1980s, there was this made-for-TV movie about a missile attack. It was so realistic, it terrified America and scared the president into action. The movie, titled The Day After, put the reality of nuclear war into America's living rooms. Hannah McBride spoke to Nicholas Meyer, who directed the 1983 film.
0: I thought of it as a Smokey the Bear, only you can prevent forest fires type, just just the facts, just the facts. This is what it's gonna be like. You'll be shopping and you'll be nuked.
3: The movie takes place in my hometown, Kansas City, Missouri, and in Lawrence, Kansas, a college town about an hour west. Now, Nick, you directed this film. So why put a story that's so dramatic, you know, one about nuclear war, in a place that seems so ordinary?
0: That's sort of what The Day After was asking. Can tragedy happen to an ordinary person? Forget about presidents and war rooms and missile silos. They pick Kansas City and Lawrence as more or less the geographical dead center, the bullseye, if you like, of the continental U.S.
3: About halfway through the movie, there's the actual bomb blast, and it's this long, intense scene. It shows the bombing itself with a combination of, like, firebombs and archival footage of real nuclear bomb blasts and animations of people being disintegrated. one of those sizzle sounds that you hear is someone literally turning into a skeleton. And then all of it just fades to black. It's pretty blunt.
0: You had to walk a fine line with this movie. People, you know, have a remote control in their hands. So we had to make a movie that conveyed the awfulness of nuclear war without making it so awful that you changed the channel. And so we sort of put all our eggs in one basket. And I said, there was no way to do this without really going whole hog and watching people turn into skeletons.
3: An estimated 100 million people watched this when it aired in 1983, which makes this the most watched tv movie of
0: all time and nobody expected the kind of audience the size that we got i sure didn't from my perspective it isn't a very good movie and more than that it was not intended to be a very good movie if the performances were so memorable, we'd say, oh my god, Joe Beth Williams, amazing, Jason Robards broke your heart. I just thought, no, it can't be a good movie. It has to be like a public service announcement. If you have a nuclear war, this is more or less what it's going to be like.
3: Even before it aired, though, it whipped up quite the frenzy.
0: The day after, Sunday. Danny! Rental discretion advised. This is Lawrence, Kansas. Is anybody there? Anybody at all?
3: TV promos cautioned viewers not to watch it alone. ABC distributed this eight-page pamphlet with talking points about nuclear warfare and the fallout. And Ted Koppel even hosted a special segment that aired immediately after the movie to address the audience's fears of nuclear war.
2: There is,
0: and you probably need it about now, there is some good news. If you can, take a quick look out the window. It's all still there. Your neighborhood is still there, so is Kansas City and Lawrence and Chicago and Moscow They had a and panel
3: of experts to discuss the possibility of nuclear war like scientist Carl Sagan who coined the term nuclear winter point out
0: that the reality is much
2: worse than what what has been portrayed in this movie and this new emerging reality has significant policy implications
0: they had to put George Shultz on the TV he was secretary of state to uh, chill out everybody. Well, the movie certainly dramatizes the unacceptability of nuclear warfare.
3: Then-President Ronald Reagan even saw it. The Joint Chiefs of Staff held a screening of the film before it aired on TV, and Reagan wrote in his White House diary that day that the movie, the day after, had, quote, greatly depressed him.
0: The second place I heard about it was from Reagan's uh, official biographer, Edmund Morris, he said to me that the only time he saw Ronald Reagan become upset was after they screened the day after. And he just went into a funk.
3: And not long after that, Reagan held a series of summits with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev about both countries' nuclear arsenals.
0: And I told Gorbachev, here you and I are, two men in a room, probably the only two men in the world, who could bring about World War III. But by the same token, we may be the only two men in the world who could perhaps bring about peace.
3: Those meetings resulted in the INF Treaty, where the U.S. and Soviet Union agreed to destroy more than 2,500 nuclear missiles. So, Nick, the film was successful in influencing the president to destroy at least some of the nuclear weapons on the planet. Do you think it was successful in changing the minds of the people that are in the film, you know, ordinary folks?
0: And I think what the day after succeeded in doing, by its very conception, it was so banal. It was a movie of the week, for heaven's sake. It's about people going shopping. It snuck in through the back door of the national consciousness in this sort of innocuous way because it wasn't you know, preaching to the people who were already saying, oh my God, this is happening, let's put our head in an oven. No, it took the people by surprise and it showed them this, this, this is what's waiting. If you don't do something, if you don't take charge, if you don't become involved, if you don't protest,
1: Hannah McBride is a reporter for 60DB, a personalized app for short-form audio stories. You can find it in your favorite app store. And once you've got the app, you can hear a lot from the outline there, too. We'll be right back. Culture. Live PD, a twice-weekly live show on a has been on the air since October of last year.
0: Hi, I'm Dan Abrams, and this is our control center at a e Network headquarters in New York City. We are live in Richland County, South Carolina, and with five other departments around the country. This is Live PD.
1: It follows select police departments from across the country as officers go about their jobs responding to emergency calls, serving warrants, making arrests, and occasionally partaking in high-speed car chases.
0: Shut the truck off! Drop your coat! You make any further
2: movements, you going to be bit. This area's known for drugs. It's known
1: for prostitution. A&E angles the show as a public service, bringing transparency to law enforcement.
2: Blow, 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 blow,
3: blow, 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 blow. Three times
1: the legal limit. Kill And Derek Gaillot has spent some time watching the show, and she's not convinced. Hi, Anne.
2: Hey, Adrian. What does a typical episode look like? A typical episode um, will be introduced by the host, Dan Abrams. He will direct us to the different police departments that we're following. And as we cut between them, there will be an officer usually who will give us the audience some context on what they're responding to
0: as always we got more than 30 cameras following the action and with me in the studio as always is Tom Morris Jr the veteran crime reporter and former Washington DC special police officer
2: there's a little like on screen text that will tell us where in the country we are and when things kind of slow down with one department Dan Abrams will switch to the feed for another department somewhere else in the country and then also there are Two expert panelists.
0: And two special guests are back with us from Richland County, deputies Chris Mastriani and Kevin Lawrence. Gentlemen, good evening.
2: Who he talks to to kind of process what the audience has just seen or kind of explain what just happened.
1: Do you buy the the argument that this adds
2: some needed transparency to our police? Oh, my God. Absolutely not. Inherently, in being a TV show and following the police and seeing their perspective, it's inherently a one-sided presentation. So there's, I find that claim to be just like awful to even try to claim.
1: But they're not doing any cutting, right? It's not like a reality show where they are getting people drunk off to the side and then cutting everything up to make it look like some drama happened that didn't really happen. It's supposed to be live. So live and raw, unfiltered?
2: Right. So that's, I think, something the fact that they don't edit, they have a delay just in case, but the fact that they don't cut scenes or edit things together is the show's creator's main selling point for why it's so authentic. But the fact is, even when things are live, that doesn't mean that it's unfiltered. You have a lot of things filtering the program from the fact that it's a show for entertainment on A&E to the aspect of having a host in the form of Dan Abrams explaining things from the police officer's point of view.
1: Out of the six hours that you watched, what was the like most exciting sort of crime or interaction that happened?
2: I mean, the most exciting is the one I talk about in the beginning of my article. I would say it was exciting in a really sad way where... The police were chasing someone in their car. The car got into an accident and flipped over, and a man came crawling out of the wreckage holding a like two-year-old kid in his arms, and then he struggled with a police officer who was trying to arrest him for evading police, and it was just a really sad thing to see. <laughs> see a little kid in the midst of all of it was really sad and shocking. How is this show resonating with its fans? Um, on Twitter, a lot of people, there's a lot of criticism of what the police officers are doing, and there's also a lot of praise for what some of the police officers are doing. Either way, both sides, whether people are criticizing them, the people that appear on the show, or praising, they are all watching the show. 1.4 million people on average watch each episode. And um, A&E has just ordered 100 more three-hour episodes. So overall, from the perspective of people running the show, it's really successful because it's bringing in a ton of viewers and making headlines every time something shocking happens.
1: So you mentioned that there is a delay on the broadcast because there could be something risky or dangerous or something that would be too violent to show Can
2: you talk a little bit about the risks of airing this kind of stuff? Sure. So one risk is that people who are portrayed on the show, immediately that's a blow to their reputation, how they're viewed amongst people who know them, people who don't know them. At the beginning of each show, it says that viewers need to keep in mind that not everyone who is arrested or depicted on the show is later charged of a crime. But either way, their image and their identity is still broadcast in connection to their interaction with a police officer on the show. So the damage to people's reputation and community's reputation is one risk. And that's why officers in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Bridgeport, Connecticut eventually decided not to participate in the show anymore. Another risk is that just a tragedy can happen and it's going to be broadcast to the entire world. So, I mean, for instance, in January Um, A woman found out that her son was dead when she saw him on the TV show. He had been shot um, and the police officers were responding to the situation. And only when her son's body was broadcast on the show did she find out that her, her son had died. So that's a really tragic thing that really shouldn't happen to anyone. I'm not sure how the public merit of broadcasting that. Can be argued, but that's definitely illustrated of, of the risks that the show takes when they are broadcasting such a dangerous job on the show.
1: And thank you so much for watching the show and sharing this with us.
2: Thanks, Adrian.
1: That concludes the dispatch. This week is just getting started, and we do this show every Monday through Thursday. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere else you find podcasts to get a new episode every morning. I'm Adrian Jeffries, and we'll have more stories tomorrow.